electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer and David Faber have the morning off. Futures close to a one-week high here as the reopening trade Find some fresh legs, more states loosening restrictions. You've got some signs that port congestion may soon ease. And at least one Fed official says we're on the cusp of inflation moderating 10-year below 194. Our roadmap begins with the Speaker of the House buckling. Report says she's moving to ban stock trading on Capitol Hill. Here's what she had to say on it in December. This is a free market and people, we have a free market economy that should be able to participate in that. Plus, Atlanta Fed President Bostic telling CNBC we could be on the cusp of an inflation decline. We're going to dig into the consumer impact with the CEO of Yum! Brands. And stemming the slide, already down 35% since the start of the year. Shares of Meta looking for some gains at the open. We are going to start with the markets and looking to extend yesterday's rally. We could potentially here string together three straight winning weeks. We haven't done that in about three months. It doesn't feel like it. Um, And, you know, the net effect is the S&P closed yesterday almost precisely in the middle of the range from the peak on January 3rd to the low on January uh, 24th. The last couple of days, there's been a little more traction inside the market. Cyclical groups doing well. We have this bit of a reopening push or this sense that Omicron's passing quickly. Uh, Hotel stocks, for example, doing very well. Uh, So I do think it's interesting. On the other hand, What we're doing is this morning going to open up at levels on the S&P we first saw about six months ago, right? September, October. Mm. So there's room to make up. Uh, The the NASDAQ 100 is still 12% below its high. So you have a combination of ketchup dynamics, the bond market calming down, and people feeling as if maybe we've spent months trying to price in what central banks are going to do. And have we absorbed it all? I guess that'll be the question going into that inflation number tomorrow, Morgan. That will be the that will be the question. And of course, inflation continues to be in focus. I mean, obviously, earnings are fueling what we've seen in terms of uh, this rally in the markets to kick off the week. And it does seem like some companies are faring, which we knew was going to happen coming into this earnings season. But some companies are faring better in terms of navigating inflation and the higher costs and being able to in cases like Chipotle now push that out to consumers and still have that demand remain intact, at least for now, uh, versus others where maybe it's been a a trickier situation, which is why it's going to be interesting to hear what Yum! Brands has to say. Also, just because how how much higher costs can consumers actually take now in 2022 um, before that demand does start to ease, Carl? Um, Those are going to be the key questions, uh, I think, as we do have uh, a series of Fed officials coming out and saying, yeah, higher inflation could even get higher in the case of daily, could even potentially get higher before it goes lower. But that eventually we're going to we're going to settle and we have to see what that's going to mean as the Fed begins to hike rates starting next month. Yeah, I keep coming back to what Brinker told us earlier in the week. Some of these food prices, he said, are coming down. Uh, We'll start to see what I would call aggressive increases start to mitigate. That's why they're not pricing 
for a lot of this because they don't want to get over their skis. Right. And it kind of does point to what Bostic said on our air today, uh, the notion that perhaps we are on the cusp of seeing inflation moderate. When I think about inflation, uh, what I see right now is uh, an elevated level, uh, and I'm very hopeful that we're going to start to see that decline. What we've seen is inflation uh, not get worse on a month-to-month -month level, and I'm hopeful that we, that will translate into a, a slow decline as we move through the spring and into the summer, which will give me some comfort uh, that we're really headed in the right direction. So he basically says 25 basis point moves, kind of walking us off of the 50 uh, ledge. Uh, and he's pricing in three, maybe leaning to four. Yeah, uh, which is mm -hmm. still behind where the market is. I think that's the key issue here is that if, if the center of the, the, the FOMC is still in that three to four range or we'll do one and we'll see how the numbers come through, then arguably the market has done a fair bit of the work and the two-year note at 1.3 something uh, is, is kind of what you're going to get for now. And of course, the math starts to work in favor of that call that inflation is peaking in a few months. Not right now, because the numbers year over year are going to still be uh, pretty eye-popping, uh, most likely. So th I think that's, uh, you know, that's the walk we are, we're walking right now. Also, mm -hmm. Morgan, in the bond market, long-term yields are, are up, but they're not really you know, going, taking flight. Uh, and what that's suggesting is that this tightening campaign may be short and concentrated, but likely to restrain inflation and not going to be this kind of protracted uh, tightening effort where the Fed is chasing inflation higher. Yeah, I mean, you could certainly argue you're already seeing that play out with some of the dynamics in housing, right, where you have housing prices in major metro areas over the past year that are up something like 20 percent. Now you have mortgage rates at the highest level uh, in since before the pandemic, and you're starting to potentially see some, I don't want to say corrections yet, but you're starting to see that, that heat that we've seen in housing uh, maybe begin to turn a corner too. Uh, Maersk, I keep close eye, as you guys know, on, on freight flows and trade flows. And Maersk was the latest one to come out today and say that they expect to see container shipping um, and, and the strength we've seen there with capacity tightness and all of these supply chain issues um, that they're going to expect to see that begin to normalize in the second half of this year. Um, that being said, I mean, uh, going back to housing, I mean, some of these other areas, Carl, housing, wage increases, which we've been getting a lot of commentary on from many companies reporting earnings are, are going to be the areas where I think it's particularly key to keep an eye in terms of inflation moderating and, and what what a new normal is going to look like, whether that actually does come down to 2% at some point or whether it stays elevated as you do start to see, for example, rents in the services piece of CPI uh, begin to catch up as well. Yeah, going back to two would, I think, maybe take some people by surprise, but yes. uh, they might be happy for something above that range. And uh, as for mortgage rates, we did get um, a mortgage purchase demand down 96 is really pointing to the demand destruction that Morgan mentions. Then there's Yum Brands higher in the pre-market after beating on quarterly revenue and comps, overshadowing a Q4 earnings miss. CEO David Gibbs is going to join us later on in the hour. And in the meantime, Chipotle's up sharply after that profit beat. They were helped by price hikes. Uh, Brian Nickel talked about inflation yesterday on Closing Bell. Obviously, I, I hope the inflationary environment slows down. But where we are, if we were to take no more pricing in 2022, we, we'd have about a 6% a little bit more than a 6% price increase. And we know if we need to take more pricing, we have room to do it. To date, we've seen no resistance from our customers. I think I heard someone mention, we're fortunate that our brand and the customers really do believe uh, we're a tremendous value. 
Of course, they've already uh, hiked prices uh, once so mm -hmm. far, and they see more coming in the year. As for Yum, Mike, you and I were talking about the unit growth. Yeah. Uh, a record, industry record, 4,000 new units last year as these uh, quick service are taking advantage of the change yeah. in, in habits. It's a totally different model, of course, than, than Chipotle. It's just like, yeah. you know, franchise aggressively, you know, the Taco Bell KFC uh, model. And, you know, it's they've had same-store sales growth that was very strong, double-digit, uh, and, you know, system-wide also pretty strong. So it is a little bit different. They're basically still in that value mode, uh, even though you're going to have to try and tighten up uh, in terms of pricing along the way. What, Brian Nickel, when he said, I think I heard someone say, that was me saying it on Closing Bell before that, <laughs> that if you are Chipotle, where your customer base is not hooked on, you know, the highest calories per dollar value meal, it's, they've <laughs> always been a little bit of a premium buy. It's always, they've always paid their workers over minimum wage a little bit better. Yeah. So arguably, yes, they are in a better spot than somebody that's, that's, that's you know, been kind of feeding off of those deflationary dynamics that were in, uh, in QuickServe for, for a very long time, Morgan. It's such a key point. I mean, you could put Starbucks in that bucket too, and very different than some of the fast food companies like Yum! Brands and some of the brands that are under that umbrella. I'm, I'm, I'm curious though, the fact that they've seen such Yum! Brands, they've seen such rapid expansion. I mean, it is not, and I say this as the daughter, as you guys know, of a Burger King franchisee, not a very easy time to be a small business owner or a fast food franchisee right now, given the fact that you have had higher costs, you have had wage pressures uh, and the like. And certainly the pandemic has added a boost to things like drive throughs And I'd imagine we're going to start to see some normalization there. But I am curious where they are seeing that demand from prospective franchisees when you are talking about some of these small business creators, which is what essentially they are, Mike. Yeah, without a doubt. A lot of it is global, of course. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, credit markets are still kind of open and you can you can borrow to do this. And, you know, we have seen a fair push during the pandemic toward, you know, business startups as opposed to, you know, people looking to, to get back into a wage earning role. But I agree with you. It is uh, it kind of amazing that you have people willing to take that on, uh, be a small business owner at a time when uh, it, it's becoming a little bit tougher. The high friction type exercise right now. Of course, uh, Yum's digital business now topping 22 uh, billion is going to add to productivity and, and take the edge off of some of those labor mm -hmm. pressures. But to your point about lower income strata versus upper, this upgrade, uh, not an upgrade, it's a tactical outperform call on Canada Goose today yeah. out of Evercore. Um, we think it's going to outperform next couple quarters. Quote, as high-end consumers flush with cash, uh, look to splurge post-COVID, particularly in the hot outerwear category. So we're going to, I mean, yeah. the, the economy is going to lean on those with more excess cash, and that's going to be the top 20%. Yeah, and, you know, the, the stock market's found its footing a little bit here. I think there was a little bit of concern as we had that correction. Uh, and, in fact, if you look at European luxury stocks, they've not behaved that well. Just this idea that the, the psychological wealth effect, that plus crypto, uh, maybe is going to, you know, back off. But, you know, Canada Goose, still kind of a, niche brand and, and one that still has room to grow, arguably, uh, you know, they can they can still feed off of the fact that uh, there is this tiering of, of wealth and income. Now. Mm, which is a conversation we've been having for the better part of a decade, if not longer, the bifurcation of the consumer. And it does speak to the questions, guys, about just how fragile or not fragile this economy is right now, as we've seen strong GDP numbers, but of course tied to things like inventory replenishment. Well, the push for legislation banning members of Congress from trading stocks is gaining steam on Capitol Hill. And Elon Moy joins us now with the latest. Hi, Elon. 
Morgan, I can now confirm that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is getting behind that movement to ban lawmakers from trading stocks while they are in office. She is working with the House Administration Committee, according to a source familiar, on what those new rules would look like. But this would amount to an about face for the speaker who has defended member trading as just part of a free market economy. I can also tell you that she has uh, asked them to take a look at ways to beef up existing rules as well as pressure for a prohibition build on Capitol Hill. Now, today, GOP Senator Steve Daines and Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren will unveil a bill that would ban lawmakers from not only trading stocks, but also owning them, even in a blind trust. Now, this is the first bipartisan bill in the Senate, and it takes a harder line than other proposals that are in the works. Yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he believes in a ban, and I'm told he's asked half a dozen Democrats to come up with a unified approach to that problem. That includes Senator Warren, along with Senator Sherrod Brown and John Ossoff, who also have stock trading bills of their own. But Pelosi's support here, guys, is going to be crucial. The shift in her position as a reflection of how vocal her members have been. She'll be holding a press conference later on this morning. And of course, we will be watching. Back to you. Oh, we'll be watching. And Elon, I know you've been all over this. And I'm going to ask, it's probably a bit of a jaded question here, but this has been a dynamic that's been in play for so long. We saw the uproar around Fed officials. Uh, We've seen the uproar around judges as well. And now, of course, we're seeing increased uproar around lawmakers. I mean, the timing, can we discount the timing, the fact that we're coming into midterm elections? Well, sort of cleaning up Washington is always a popular theme ahead of a ahead of a political election. But this has been something that's been in the works for a while. The last time Congress sort of took a hard look at the ethics rules around trading stocks was about a decade ago. That resulted in something called the Stock Act, which banned lawmakers from doing insider trading. But what we found is that that is a really high bar to prove and that the penalties that were in place for not following the rules around disclosure were actually pretty small, a couple hundred bucks for a violation. So that is something that uh, lawmakers are looking to change and not only change the rules, but also increase the penalties for not following them. Carl. Elon, thank you. Our Elon Moy in Washington. When we come back uh, this morning, Facebook parent Meta uh, down 30 percent since reporting earnings last week. As you know, its valuation now below 600 billion at yesterday's close. Hasn't done that uh, since uh, May of 2020. We'll talk about where the stock goes from here. Take a look at the pre-market. You got uh, indices all look to open in the green. NASDAQ may go green for the month at the open. VIX almost back to 20. And we'll talk about what's on the line for Uber Disney tonight. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. 
that big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Facebook parent Meta rising in the pre-market, but the company has lost a third of its market value so far this year. And most of that drop occurred after last week's earnings report. Meta closed yesterday's session with a market valuation below $600 billion. Let's bring in KeyBank, a KeyBank Capital Markets Equity Research Analyst Justin Patterson to talk about where it goes from here. Uh, Justin, obviously the market is uh, like three days of really just heavy liquidation, Im- implying that uh, the outlook for uh, profitability for the company is a lot less reliable, probably a lot less uh, strong uh, in the coming years. You did trim revenue and earnings estimates a bit, but where, where is the run rate from here in terms of growth? And how's the valuation look relative to that? That's a great question. Facebook's going through a business model transition, hence the name change toward Meta. And it's also lapping challenging comps. It's dealing with the Apple privacy issues. It's dealing with TikTok. So really, over the next two quarters, you're going to be looking at a business that's growing mid-high single digits top line. So really, we don't get a true barometer of underlying trends until the second half of the year, where we think this can go back toward high teens growth. And then as you come out with the higher revenue growth rate, you start absorbing that fixed cost, that investment cycle spend, and then you see margins recover. So right now, you're looking at a business that's trading at a mid-high teens earnings multiple. Historically, that's inexpensive for Facebook. So as we see progress with Reels, the TikTok competitor, you can start feeling more confident that the stock goes higher. Yeah, I mean, yesterday, even though the stock was down, it did close about $4 off its low during the day. Very, very heavy volume. So clearly people are wondering if this level around the pre-pandemic price for the stock is is some kind of uh, floor for the short term for value. But how much of a bet does an investor right now have to be making on how fruitful the, the investments in Metaverse are going to be and these billions that, that Meta is spending in that area. I just wonder if right now you have, you're going to have an investor base that says, listen, buy back a lot more stock, you know, milk the high margins on the legacy business and try to get the ad targeting right, as opposed to you know, sort of making these huge wagers on the next phase of, uh, you know, of digital communication. Yeah, I 100% agree. There is a definite capital allocation question here because, you know, to your point, the metaverse is going to be a very distant payoff here. We still have a subset of virtual reality devices uh, that are in households today, so it's going to take time to see those returns. Whereas in the immediate term, we have TikTok as a competitor, which is weighing on daily active user growth and necessitating this shift toward real. So. Um, while it's great to talk about the future, if you lose the present, that future state doesn't really matter too much. So I think what we're all watching near term is just how does this reels progression go? Can that stabilize daily active users, drive more engagement? And can that really start to monetize? If that happens, yes, we can all feel a lot more confident about Meta's future state. So, Justin, I mean, given the fact that you still have an overweight rating on the stock, if an investor had money to put to work in one name right now, would it be Meta or would it be another name that you cover? I think Meta still offers attractive returns right here. It's, again, historically inexpensive. We've already had a very broad D rating, estimates of reset lower. 
So as we start to see progress with Reels, start to see advertising revenue improve, I think uh, the business looks better over the course of the year, and you don't have that much downside from these levels. Hmm. Okay. How big of a deal is it that Peter Thiel is the first institutional investor in the company formerly known as Facebook, has been on the board since 2005, most prominent conservative voice as well, is leaving? You know, it's something that raises more eyebrows in quarters like this one, where you do have um, you know, numbers coming down, more competition. But if this was an ordinary situation, business as usual, we really wouldn't be talking about the board transition too much. So call it a mild cautionary flag, but not one that I'm seeing too many investors lose sleep over. Hmm. Yeah, I guess there's plenty else uh, that, uh, that they have their hands full with. Uh, Justin, thanks a lot. Appreciate your uh, perspective this morning. Thank you. Still to come this morning, Yum! Brand CEO David Gibbs. The stock rising on that better-than-expected revenue and comp figure. We'll get his take on pricing and inflation as the year moves on. In the meantime, you got futures here pretty much on all the indices looking at about one-week highs. Every day? Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. As we make our way through February here, NASDAQ may go green month to date and join the Dow S&P at the open. As for year to date, the Dow needs about 875 points to make that happen. We're going to get the opening bell in about six minutes. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Shares of Lyft are off their lows of the morning, now down only about 1% pre-market. Company posting better than expected quarterly results, helped by higher fares. But ridership numbers did miss street forecasts in the wake of the Omicron surge. Listen to what CEO Logan Green had to say on Lyft's earnings call. The Omicron variant had a significant impact on ride volumes. The rapid surge in infections was correlated with reduced demand for rideshare. However, since the spike in the U.S. has now peaked, we expect demand will begin to recover. In fact, in the last week of January, we saw a pickup in rideshare rides that we see as a positive signal. Ultimately, given the expected impact of Omicron on Q1 and the unknown shape of the recovery, which could carry into Q2, our near-term revenue growth acceleration will likely be affected. I mean, it is worth noting, first, annual positive adjusted EBITDA for the company you saw a shortage of drivers, but you also saw the improvement in the mix of shorter rides and airport trips, Mike. But it really speaks to, in many ways, what we talked about earlier in the show, which is this balance between higher prices amid inflationary pressures and consumer demand. 
Right. And and what they need to offer to drivers on the other side of it, right, so, which right. is their implicit labor, labor costs. It is a tough balance. Yeah, the adjusted EBITDA number maybe uh, looks better than it has in the past. Of course, you're adding back a pile of stock-based compensation to get to that uh, adjusted EBITDA number. It's a, it's a tough call in terms of this group in general. It seems like a duopoly in this very crucial kind of consumer utility type business should have more than a combined $90 billion market value. That's Uber plus Lyft is 90 billion. It's like 74 for Uber and 16 for Lyft. It just doesn't seem like it's enough, except they're not able to show a clear path to when they're going to be producing a lot of cash. Uh, and so you, you continue to wait. And these stocks trade really poorly relative to where they debuted. Either Uber's flat, more or less, in almost three years, and Lyft is about, you know, half its initial, you know, closing price after the IPO. Meanwhile, as far as Uber tonight, you got to weigh both the ride business, which yeah. is exposed to a reopening, versus the eats business, which mm. is kind of exposed to a stay at home. It is, although I think people, in my observation, tend to like that mix a little bit better just because, again, it seems like they can be, you know, one of the main providers of something. It's not going to go away. You know, you have consumer habits that have been built in a certain way. Um, so we'll see if, it's, if there's a, either a balance there or it's just kind of like spoiling the story. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one of the big names we're going to watch for after the bell tonight. Speaking of bells, let's get the opening one and the CNBC real-time exchange at the Big Board Digital Media Group Arena celebrating its uplisting and the NASDAQ, the National Black NBA Association, celebrating Black History Month. As far as CPI goes tomorrow, Mike, kind of all these tactical games saying, well, um, if it's hot, market's likely to go down less than it would go up if it were cold. I mean, how do you how do you game this or can you even do that? I don't know if it's that easy to game um, in the sense of this number in in a vacuum. Obviously, I have to weigh it against the fact that, you know, we've been saturating ourselves in inflation alarm for well over a year right now. Market-based expectations for inflation in multiple years have actually come down off their highs. So nobody thinks this is kind of runaway. It's all about informing what the Fed is going to do and what other central banks are going to do. And right now, we've priced in something close to maybe five hikes from the Fed this year. So that's why I wonder what the direct takeaway is going to be from this number. Obviously, if the areas that are supposed to ease up a little bit, don't ease up. It's going to be another excuse for people to say, hey, Fed's behind the curve. Let's talk about 50 basis points in March, in which case, uh, if you really get that priced into the market, obviously Fed officials are going to have to kind of weigh in on that and and say, do we really want that front loaded type uh, initial tightening move, Morgan, or not? I mean, that is going to be a key question. And then, of course, you've got quantitative tightening expected behind that come June. Um, a lot of a, a very, t- a very tight, tight rope uh, that Fed officials will be walking. To your point, I mean, S&P is up 1% right now, about 42 points. 45.63 is the level there. All the major averages are higher. NASDAQ's outperforming. It's up about 1.2% right now. Every sector in the S&P is in the green, I would note, uh, as we have seen the 10-year yield uh, come down a little bit off of its highs earlier in the week when it did hit that highest level, Carl, since uh, 2019. Also, oil has turned positive this morning, which is interesting because we had seen some profit taking largely because of some of the geopolitical currents we've been seeing, particularly around Iran. But of course, we have seen tighter inventories. We're going to get another number at 1030 a.m. Eastern. 
Yeah, oil is interesting uh, right now. Uh, Goldman yesterday said, okay, let's, let's game out what happens if there is an Iran deal and you do get some additional supply coming in the next few months. Uh, their view, maybe $7 downside to Brent. Yeah, uh, but they call it a speed bump in their eventual call for Brent still going to 105. Right. Uh, they they really want to see the market destroy demand, and they're not really worried about things that might get in the way of that path. Yeah, and it's difficult to come up with that number where you start to actually curtail demand. Um, I think it's worth remembering that crude traded at these levels in this range from like 2011 to 2014 when the economy was a lot smaller, when consumers had much lower incomes, when obviously there was more sensitivity in terms of the overall economy to fuel prices. So it's not as if it's a killer right away and you wonder if the price therefore has to be higher. A lot of talk about how the structure of the futures is backwarded. In other words, near-term prices much higher than distant ones, which shows scarcity. It does show Mm -hmm. strains on supply But it also means people think it's going to ease up down the road and and therefore somewhat normalize, Morgan. Yeah, in the meantime, Enphase Energy, just talking about alternative energy right now and solar plays in particular, Enphase Energy is up 21% this morning after uh, those stronger-than-expected earnings. And you're seeing quite a number of the other solar stocks. Solar Edge is also higher by something like 11% um, trade in sympathy, which kind of speaks to some of those currents that we're seeing, too, within the broader energy sector, Carl, uh, where the fact that we have had high crude prices, we've had high electricity prices, we've had incentives from the government to adopt more of these green energy, clean energy technologies, um, does seem to be working in favor of an end phase. Yeah, I mean, well, look at uh, look at Ford today uh, and GM. You got uh, Ford uh, commercials we'll see in the next few days for the e-transit, where it's not only electric, but you can power your Powell tools from it. Yeah. Uh, report out of, uh, uh, this morning out of Reuters that GM is, uh, sources say, going to do a six-fold increase in electric pickup and SUV production for 22. Basically, your your idea, your what you just said about the economy being less levered to yes. oil is going to be interesting once enough of us have electric cars and we really don't care what retail gas is. Yeah, the pace of the transition is a, a very interesting argument right now because on the one hand, they can, the demand is absolutely there for this initial wave of these models coming out of GM and Ford, and it's about how much they can produce. On the other hand, you know, the average age of a car on the road has been going up forever. What is it, eight, <laughs> nine years? I mean, that's one of the actually bold points about why the car market is, uh, you know, there's pent-up demand. So, in other words, people kind of rotate into a new vehicle over a course of years. Nobody knows what the resale. Uh, our, our friend Nick Colas at Truck this morning made that point. Former you know, auto analyst. Yes, former auto analyst. You don't know what the resale value of this EV is going to be in three or five years when the technology is improving so quickly and are you kind of buying into, you know, uh, the Betamax version of it. And so it's interesting uh, to, to kind of hand handicap that. Ford and GM well off their highs. A lot of charts look like that, by the way. This huge bulge in the fourth quarter into January, and now they have to settle down uh, a little bit. So um, if I look at the, the auto market, the home builders market, Whirlpool has done nothing in a year. Brunswick has done nothing in a year. The sellers of big, heavy, durable stuff, they kind of had their moment, and now it's about what's the run rate of demand from here. And that also feeds into the inflation story, because that's where the mm-hmm. inflation was mm-hmm. in those goods that had those problems with supply chain and everything else. Yeah, which, by the way, is going to play out for EVs at some point as well. I mean, lithium's been kind of the focus this week, given the fact that you have those lithium supplies in California. I mean, we've talked about it with the CEO of Freeport McMoran as well, Carl, and copper, and the fact that there's going to be such demand for copper and some of these other types of commodities, which are already seeing price increases over the coming years. And then, of course, when you do talk about something like declining oil production, at least here in the U.S. And natural gas is such a key 
part of what powers uh, the electrical grid here in the U.S. too. So even if you're plugging in your EV, you still have to get that electricity from somewhere. So what does that process look like as well? And you've got to think that some of that is going to trickle out uh, into that piece of the market too. Yeah, it's not a it's not a coincidence that uh, that Tesla is selling solar panels and Ford exactly. is pitching its EVs as a as a power generator essentially for your tools or for your home. Uh, the last mile of the grid is going to be an ongoing concern probably for years to come. Um, as for Peloton today, guys, wow, it's gone from 23 to 40 uh, in two sessions. That's two sessions of 20 percent gains each <laughs> uh, today. Some internal memos from our own uh, at our uh, own Lauren Thomas yeah. reporting about. McCarthy's role um, there for the comeback story is the way it's characterized in some of these internal memos. And at the very least, another piece in The Times says his, his performance is there to maybe buy them some time yeah. for an eventual sale. That's the way it would seem to me, whether it's for an eventual sale or something else. Um, you know, you've basically gotten the bad news out, new leadership, rationalizing the cost. Uh, structure of the company, trying to sort out what run rate is, trying to outsource a little more than you did before in terms of distribution, and navigate toward that point where you are mostly a content company. You know, I mean, I I think that's ultimately what you have to do to justify uh, a much higher valuation. So I I think, um, you know, their hope would be to, you know, have fewer headlines in the next few months than they've had recently. And yeah, stocks have 50% off the lows. It's probably kind of kick around here for a while. When we come back this morning, got a revenue beat for the home of KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell. We'll talk to David Gibbs of Yum! Brands about pricing and inflation and a lot more. Before we go uh, go to break, though, take a look at the bond report. We did mention yields backing off a bit uh, this morning. As Bostic said, we might be on the cusp of seeing inflation ease. Although I will note, uh, Goldman, uh, just a few moments ago, upping its year-end target on the 10-year from two to two and a quarter. We're back in a minute. Yum! Brands rising on Q4 results this morning. The parent of KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell beating on revenues and comps. Joining us this morning, David Gibbs, Yum! Brands CEO. David, welcome back. Always good to talk with you. Great to be with you guys. Uh, the quarter's fascinating. Uh, the, the inflationary backdrop's fascinating. But it seems like unit growth and digital are, are the two big headlines this morning. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, this was a great quarter capping off what I would call a great year. I've been with the company for 32 years. I don't think we've experienced a year with the kind of growth we had this past year in those 32 years. Uh, how, digital. How does, I'm sorry. You know, go ahead. Dive into digital because because 22 billion is a lot of money. Yeah, 22 billion, a record for us. Obviously, uh, uh, way up from just a few years ago. In 2019, we did 12 billion dollars of digital sales. So the growth there is really encouraging. Six billion dollars in the quarter. What we're seeing is the customers that are switching to digital and the investments we've made there are really paying off. And those customers are sticky in the digital channel. Even when they're returning to the restaurants, they're still using digital because it's easier for the consumer. and It's easier for us when we're running the restaurants and our employees to process orders. So it's a win-win. So what does that mean for the future of dining room uh, and all the, the implications from that stem out from that real estate and everything else? Well, we've talked in the past about experimenting with different formats that have smaller dining rooms and are more designed for uh, food on the go. Uh, there's clearly a trend for that in that is going to part of that is going to stick. But we also know that uh, customers do on, on certain occasions want to be in our dining rooms. And we are with our asset base are certainly equipped to deal with that. It, there's just shifts in consumer behavior and uh, some of it is going to be sticky. Uh, this idea of delivery obviously has taken off. The idea of using digital, 
so we're going to continue to involve, uh, evolve our estate so that our assets meet everybody's needs. David, it's Morgan. Yum in the quarter, or in the year, I should say, uh, tracked a record for new openings of, of restaurants under the Yum brand's umbrella. I'm curious, where has the most demand been? Who's franchising from you? And do you get concerned about oversaturation in a market that's now post-pandemic? Um, I'm glad you brought that up, Morgan. It is so gratifying to see the development that we had this past year. The numbers are truly mind-blowing. We opened over 4,000 gross new units in 2021. That's a unit every other hour. Every two hours, we're <laughs> opening a new store. Um, and it's really widespread. So it's not just one brand carrying the day. It's all regions of the world, all brands growing, which is very encouraging. And truly, the last thing I ever worry about is us being oversaturated. Hmm. We've proven that we have growth opportunities in our mature markets and growth opportunities in our newer, more emerging markets. Even in the U.S., we have tons of runway to build all three, all four of our brands in the U.S. Uh, and then we're starting to see development take off in some of these emerging markets that we've been investing in for many years, like India, which opened 335 units last year. David, wondering how customers who over the years uh, at a lot of your chains have become so used to the, the value orientation of, of the offerings are adjusting if, if prices are going up across the board. Of course, we did have, uh, you know, Brian Nickel of Chipotle saying they have an $8 chicken burrito. There's no resistance to people paying that. Um, is that something that you feel as if is giving you headroom uh, in terms of pricing or do you feel pressure to, to maintain uh, that very low price point? Look, our industry was fa was founded on the idea of great tasting food and convenience and value. And Yum Scale and our innovative teams um, obviously are hitting on all cylinders when it comes to all three of those dimensions. Uh, we are always going to provide great value to consumers. But in this environment, an inflationary environment, we know that we have room uh, to take price. And we have other levers that we can pull in order to manage the pressure on inflation. Uh, we've proven all around the world operating in over 150 countries with very many different environments of inflation, deflation, all sorts of different challenges in every one of those environments. We've proven that our model is resilient and that we can always thrive in any environment. So we're confident as we move forward um, that we will be able to continue to have the kind of margins and profitability that we've demonstrated in the last few years, uh, which is so critical because you don't get those 4,000 gross new units being built by franchisees with their franchise, you know, their capital, unless you've got the right kind of business model for them, and we do. You know, it's interesting. The market is is so hoping for a rollover in food inflation, but uh, you know, I've seen a lot of analysis on. Just say, for example, farming inputs, the five-fold increase in the price of fertilizer that's going to make a rollover in food inflation a little more difficult maybe than, than some think. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's no doubt we're operating in an inflationary environment, but, but let's remember that's uh, mostly in the U.S. for us right now. Two-thirds of our restaurants are outside the U.S., and that's a very different environment, uh, and that's where a lot of our growth is occurring. But in the U.S., you know, um, we're dealing with inflationary pressures. We're dealing with supply chain pressures. Uh, the, you know, the labor component, which we haven't talked about, is mm -hmm. obviously a challenge. Um, we've come out of some of the challenges of Omicron. We feel better about that as we move forward. Um, but again, uh, you know, we've been fairly cautious when it comes to pricing in the past, uh, making sure we're always the value leader in all the categories we compete in. We believe we can continue to maintain that kind of, maintain that kind of leadership. 
um, but still adjust our model to make sure our profitability is there. That's exactly where I was going with you, David, the labor component. How are you navigating that right now? And as you do make all these technology investments, how does that change or perhaps offset some of the pressures there over the longer term? Yeah, well, the technology investments are obviously a win-win all around for consumers and for our franchisees and employees. As we make it easier to process orders, um, it does actually help on the labor line. Uh, it's higher average ticket. We have happier consumers as in terms of the ease of which they can order from us. So that is a win-win and part of the equation. Um, I was just on the phone with our chief operating officers yesterday comparing notes about what's going on in the U.S., in terms of labor, and uh, there were some very consistent themes, which is encouraging. Lots of challenges, of course, in Q4 and into the beginning of this year, particularly with Omicron disrupting labor supply. Um, but more recently, we're seeing an uptick in applications, and we really do feel like um, the worst of the, at least this latest wave is behind us, which is good news for us because. The consumer demand is there, you know, may not be as high right now as it was last year with stimulus, but there's still plenty of demand. The challenges, you know, we had in Q4 and into this year is just being able to meet that demand, keep our restaurants operating the way that we know they should be operating at all times of the day. And uh, we see that situation starting to improve. David, uh, really interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting quarter to look into if, if our viewers uh, look into some of the materials. Uh, good to see you again. Thanks so much. Thanks, Carl. David Gibbs of Yum. A reminder, you can get in on the CNBC Investing Club with Jim Cramer. Just sign up and find out more at cnbc.com slash join the club or use the QR code on the screen. It'll take you right there. Uh, 45.71 here. If we can get about 45.95, that might uh, take us back to about a two-week high. Let's get to Bob Pisani, who has more on what is moving the markets in the first half hour this morning. Hey, Bob. Hey, Mike. Uh, strong start. This is six to one, advancing to declining stocks. That's a great start. Uh, all 11 sectors were up. Yields are retreating a little bit. Uh, banks not doing so much, but they've been on a tear. Take a look at the sectors. Uh, the important thing, it's a very broad advance uh, overall. So tech strong. Industrials are recovering a little bit. They've been a little wobbly in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and the two sectors that are really had the big, big momentum in January uh, and uh, most of the year, in fact, energy and banks uh, up today as well. Uh, but remember, oil topped out a what, 93 on Friday? So there's been a little bit of resistance in the last couple of days. A lot of debate about whether oil can hit $100. New high list. Uh, if you take a look, what's very interesting is what's happened is the we used to have the energy on the new high list. And that's not there right now. What's there is some of these big financial names. Now, a few regional banks hit new highs. But notice Morgan Stanley's there. A lot of insurance companies are hitting new highs. We don't usually talk about them as much. But American International Group, MetLife set a new high. Affleck. I know, is at a new high as well. We can talk about that a little more later, but this is nice to see a new leadership group besides energy stocks hit on the new high list. Uh, earnings, uh, I hope you all watch and great interview there with uh, Dave Gibbs uh, from Yum. But Brian Nickel from Chipotle, boy, he's got a lot to crow about. This is quite amazing what they were doing here. They did have the wage and price uh, commodity inflation, but they did have offset by higher prices. Uh, the margins went up, actually, really quite remarkable uh, for the company. And then you see that stock up 7% on a tear in the last couple of weeks. Uh, speaking of Omicron uh, and what was going on, people went out to the restaurants despite Omicron. CVS, these are amazing numbers, 8 million COVID tests. 
more than 20 million coronavirus vaccines CVS administered in the last quarter. Think about that. 20 million vaccines from one company overall. They, I think the stock is down because they didn't raise the forecast. They maintained their full year forecast, uh, and people are a little mystified by that, I think. But there's lots of hints. Uh, they're going into primary cl- care clinics. There's discussion here about the same store sales in January, 5% on the upside. Uh, so overall, they're, they're still knocking the, the cover off the ball, uh, despite, I think, uh, down because of the disappointing guidance. Finally, we've got a very big SEC meeting today. The commissioners are meeting, and uh, boy, is there a lot on their agenda. They are addressing three very specific issues today. One is they want to know a lot more about hedge fund and private equity disclosure. They're trying to push a new uh, rule whereby hedge funds and private equity would have to report any kind of significant stresses on their funds, like a big loss the same day it happened with one business day. They want a lot more information on the fees that hedge funds and private equity funds are charging. There's suspicion that the fees are high and they're not really outperforming. So we'll get more on that. Cybersecurity, they want more reporting, a deeper reporting on the cybersecurity incidents. They want to know more about what's happening on cybersecurity. And they're shortening the settlement cycle from two days to one day. And of course, this is one of the fallouts from the whole GameStop thing. The bottom line here is it's a big agenda, Carl. If you take a look here, they've got more than 50 proposed or final items under consideration this spring. 50. This is one of the biggest agendas in decades for the SEC. Carl, if there's one theme on the whole thing, they just want more disclosure on everything, on ESG, from hedge funds, from virtually anybody. They want to know a lot more about what's going on on Wall Street. That meeting will be in about an hour. I'll be monitoring it more on tradertalk.cnbc.com. Carl? All right, Bob, thank you very much. Bob Pisani, uh, watching some of the uh, components move here uh, in, within the Dow. Uh, Visa, Amex, Disney, all among uh, the leaders. As, uh, as we see this reopening play take place, a lot of the states now, uh, Mike, that had uh, restrictive mandates, California, New Jersey, Delaware, Connecticut, we think today New York, yes. the governor will roll some of those off. Uh, Fauci talking to the FT yesterday, uh, basically saying he thinks the full-blown nature of the pandemic is going to end and that Americans, are, are, in his words, are going to be able to make some of their own decisions based on treatments and antivirals and yeah, vaccines. Yeah, kind of an accelerated um, return to something like normal. I think the market was was kind of thinking this was the likely uh, outcome, right, concentrated Omicron uh, impact. But, yeah, I mentioned earlier hotel stocks really starting to run here. Uh, the, the hotel and leisure and the, the, the airlines, again, mm-hmm. doing pretty well. So it seems as if, you know, Morgan, maybe we got past this little kind of consumer lull uh, and, uh, and the market's willing to look beyond it. Yeah. It's like masks come off in some of, I guess, the the tightest uh, areas of the country and and markets rally. And I would note on that point, I mean, we're we're positive for all the major averages except the Nasdaq 100 now. Month to date, the Nasdaq composite of joining the S&P and the Dow after we saw those rallies to start the week. Uh, One name that's in the red, though, is CVS after their earnings this morning. That stock's down about 4%, and it is uh, the laggard, the the worst performer in the S&P. Carl. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Similarly, uh, Amgen, uh, the biggest laggard on the Dow. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.